Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, for this day. Thank you for allowing us to be here and to uh, be together. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together as we think more about what it means to live before you in a way that's relationally wise, as we think more about that, may it bring you honor and glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who weren't here, or for those of you like me, have a difficult time remembering names, I'm Chip Zimmer. I'm with a group called Relational Wisdom 360, which is responsible for this material. And uh, it's just a delight to be here. Thank you so much for coming out on a Saturday morning. I know you all have lots of uh, other options here in a place like Florida. Uh, in Montana, which I left on Thursday morning, uh, my plane was delayed because of snow and de-icing. So there are some things up there that we can't do yet, like go out and play golf on a frozen, frozen golf course. And it's really, ni- it's really nice to be here. We're going to start by reviewing. If you would, I'm just going to use the workbook to walk you through what we did last night. So if you just open up to page one, we're just going to walk through this quickly. I'm sorry, page three. Pursuing relational wisdom. What is relational wisdom? Well, in the most biblically true and also easy words to remember, it's simply this. uh, Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And there are three relational components that we hear in that. Love the Lord, your God, there's one. Okay. Love your neighbor, there's two. As we love ourselves, there's three. So three big relational contexts, and that's what we are using to consider this whole idea of what does it mean to live relationally wise. Then we talked a little bit about why is relational wisdom worth pursuing? Uh, first of all, because life is all about relationship. And I don't know, if you're like me, it, life just goes a whole lot easier when I'm getting along well with people than when I'm in constant arguments. So it's just, it just makes uh, life a whole lot easier and more enjoyable. But there are other huge reasons for this. As Christians, we know that it's our love for one another that marks us off, that tells the world uh, who we belong to. It's our unity uh, that we have in Christ. Not uniformity, but unity that we have in Christ that tells the world that we are his, that we are different. And that's all about relationship. So how we live relationally will have an awful lot to do with how the world assesses our Christian walk and the validity of the Christian faith. A second point you can see there God does promise to pursue people, I'm sorry, to bless people who pursue wisdom. He also pursues us, doesn't he? Uh, Third, relationally wise people experience less conflict and enjoy richer, more enduring relationships. I think we've all experienced that. Top of the next page, relationally wise person brings out the best in others because we're loving and serving other people. Okay? And when we love them, we want what's best for them. So we're finding ways to connect with them that allows them to be everything that God has created them to be. Fifth, when we work with others, we find relationship usually trumps expertise. And by this we mean you see that multiplication sign there between hard skills and soft skills. Hard skills, what we know, is typically what we include on a resume. But as we've all experienced, people can have great resumes and just be totally difficult to work with. And their ability to cooperate, uh, to work together in a, in a common setting, is just nil for a variety of, of relational problems that they have. And so their value to the group really goes down if their relational skills are poor. And so the idea is that relationship and relational skills matter as much and sometimes I would say even more than our technical expertise. And this is not just me speaking. I think this is also biblically accurate and also just out there in the workplace. A lot of corporations, uh, governments, universities are now pursuing this through courses. Uh, the, The secular counterpart of relational wisdom is called emotional intelligence. In fact, that's where the idea came from, to take emotional intelligence and rework it in a God-centered way, which is what relational wisdom tries to do. So a lot of money is being spent on consultants and courses and putting people through assessments of how's your, how's your emotional intelligence, and this is why. Because it's more effective to have people on a team or in a workplace or in a church, whatever it might be, who are able to engage and work well with others. Okay, and then six down at the bottom, Jesus was highly relational, most relational person ever. And seventh reason is it enabled us to know, love, and joy 
God more deeply. So that's sort of the basis for why this is something we should be concerned about. The challenge of emotions. We all know that emotions can be hugely challenging, uh, both in a good way and a bad way. Uh, we can feel great joy and we can feel great pain. Over at the top of page six, you can see that chart that we talked about last night. We've tried to list uh, 96 different emotions uh, that we can actually uh, use English words for, which is a great deal of nuance uh, in the English language to express or to, to give a name to what it is that we feel. And then boil them down into eight core emotions and really three sort of big categories, fear-driven, anger-driven, and love-driven. And we talked about how, about how in high-stress situations, uh, the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, actually receives information first before the neocortex. And so normally what will happen, especially in a, in a shocking situation, is that our emotions will kick in before our logical reasoning kicks in. And so if you find that happening yourself, to yourself, something happens and your emotions are just grabbed, that's why. And the amazing thing is God designed us this way. This isn't by accident. Okay? Those are there for a reason, and so they're a gift. The question is, how do we use that gift? Do we use it just to allow to come out of our mouths, you know, whatever the first thing that, that we might want to say, okay? which also reveals what's in our heart, doesn't it? Or is God in the process of transforming us so that we use that emotional-driven response to be a blessing to others rather than a curse? Uh, at the top of page 7, we talk now about uh, hijacking that's when your emotions simply take over. And we saw a couple of movie clips, examples of that. Mae Braddock last night when her husband, Jim, uh, was, was going to fight. And she just lost it uh, in front of the kids because of her fear that he might die in the ring. His opponent had killed two other guys in the ring. And so it's not an unfounded fear. But you could hear the emotional content uh, in her voice and the fear coming out. And we watched another later clip where she had that more under control. There was a real sense her fear hadn't subsided, but there was a sense of we're in this together, not this distance, that you're doing something that's harming me, which was her earlier earlier attitude. We talked about the downward spiral that happens. You see on the right there sort of how we tend to wander through emotional responses, an offensive response and a defensive response. The more we're flooded, the more those emotions take control of us. A lot of things happen. Brad reminded me last night afterwards that our heart rate will increase, our blood pressure will increase, we may start to sweat. All of these sorts of physiological responses happen as emotions take over. But the point there of that uh, little diagram, bottom page seven, as emotions rise, reasoning diminishes. And it's actually, they've actually, I don't know how they did it, they've actually studied these things and found out that IQ can drop by up to 15 points uh, if you're responding emotionally rather than rationally or logically out of the neocortex. And if you don't have a lot of IQ to begin with, like me, you know, 15 points is probably, you know, can't afford to lose 15 points. Okay, page nine, defining relational wisdom. And now we're actually getting into some of the technical stuff. We developed this model that has those three core relationships, God, self, and others. And then we talked about two components, two dynamics within each of those. An awareness of the other person and engagement based on what we know. So what do I know about that person and how do I act? given what I know. So God awareness, what do I know about God? Well, his word reveals a great deal. Okay, great. Knowledge is one thing. Am I actually living that out? How do I live? How do I act? How do I speak based on that awareness? And that's the engagement component. Okay, and we started to actually then develop this model. We looked at some scripture that took us through that. Uh, the gospel, top of page 10, really drives this. The more we understand and appreciate our fallenness, and the redemption that we have through Jesus, okay, the more we're likely to be motivated to really pursue good relationships with other people. And then at the bottom of page 10, the six skills or disciplines, God awareness, God engagement, we've actually defined them there in terms of what they consist of. Well, just a way to think about it. And so a formal definition at the top of page 11 Relational wisdom is your ability to discern emotions, interests, and abilities in yourself and others, to interpret them in light of God's word, and to use these insights to manage your responses and relationships constructively. Okay? If that's too much to remember, love God, love neighbor, love self. Okay? That's what it all boils down to.
at the bottom there, well, you can see in the middle a little bit of talk there about EI, emotional intelligence. And by the way, I, I mentioned that there's a lot of really good stuff, that a lot of psychological studies and other kinds of studies that have been done uh, regarding EI, and I encourage you to take a look at it. There's some very, very good insights regarding how all of this works. But remember, as you read those things, the big missing component is God. There's no central organizing spiritual dimension to emotional intelligence. In fact, my reading of it, it's mostly focused on self, how you can be more effective, how you can have a better job, how you can make more money by living an emotionally intelligent life. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but it just leaves out the biggest piece. What's our relationship with God and what's he got to say about all of this? Down at the bottom, we talked about different ways of thinking about this. Um, and we have some synonyms for God. You won't, because we don't see the words God engaging and God aware in scripture, we've tried to pick out some synonyms that take us more into a biblical framework for thinking about this stuff. So when we're aware of God, we remember him. And when God is out of our view, we forget him. Okay? And that's spoken of in scripture. When we engage God, we're faithful. We're following, we're acting on what his word says, and when we don't do that, we're acting in a fickle way. So that's what that is. Uh, and a lot of us, all of us, in fact, will wander back and forth inside and outside the circle. We may remember God, we may know very well what his word says, but we don't do it. Okay, so we're inside the circle on the awareness, but we're outside the circle on the engagement. And so what we have to do is, you know, get ourselves back inside. That's really hard to do lots of times, nonetheless. God is able to work in us and help make those things happen. And it brings us up to date. Questions? Okay, seeing none. We're going to start then. Um, we're on page 13, and uh, we're going to be going through now some uh, actual tools to help get a better feeling for how to put relational wisdom into practice. And what we've done so far is mostly talk about it at somewhat of a conceptual level. And what I want to do with these tools in the rest of the morning is actually begin to give these more of a skilled basis, a disciplined basis for actually improving and growing in these six core areas. Okay. And to start off here, if you're like me, we're going to show a clip. So, and this is a little dark. It's black and white. Um, so you'll have to really concentrate well on the screen. Um, but I like this because what it does is it shows us that you're never too old, never too old to be able to learn something new. Okay? And I'm, we're going to learn this in about 60 seconds. Oops. Let me get back. Okay, now. Here we go. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? How many of you who've not seen that before saw the moonwalking bear the first time? Oh, good, okay. Oh, okay. How many saw it the second time? Okay. This illustrates a tendency that we have it's called selective perception. And of course, this is set up to show when you're told to focus on something, your focus goes there. And the way our brains work is they will not pick up on other data, on other things. And this has a very practical implication, especially in relationships, because, well, first of all, selective perception is really good. 
I mean, it's a heck of a tool because all of us, we have millions and millions of uh, data points that our brains we receive every day, and we can't process all of them. There's no way. And so our brains organize so that we can be able to pick up on those things that our, our system, our, our, our brain is, is telling us are important. Where this gets risky, though, is that we tend to do this with people and with relationships. And you've all been in these kinds of situations where you've either been on the receiving end of this or you've actually been the one to do it, where we've made up our minds that this person is this way and he's always that way or she's always that way. And what happens is our brains then will interpret, our minds will interpret everything that person does in terms of what we have decided that they are, their character traits. So, for example, a relative of mine who uh, has a, a strong conflict, a strong argument with, uh, with another family member, simply sees everything that that family member does as uh, dishonest. Okay? And even when the family member does something really nice, it's interpreted as though, well, yeah, it was nice, but they're just trying to manipulate me. They're just trying to get you to think that they're not this dishonest person. Okay? Everything gets interpreted through that framework, that perceptive lens that this is a dishonest person. So we want to watch out for those kinds of things. Be very careful as you have relationships that we don't type other people. We don't pe put people in a box. But we take them as we would want them to take us. Okay, in all of our uh, difficulties and in all of our relational complexities. We're going to use some acrostics. Everybody know what an acrostic is? An acrostic is just simply a memory tool which um, allows us to uh, keep in mind uh, some important elements. Most acrostics will begin with the first letter of a word. And then the second word in that phrase becomes the second letter. So, for example, the word ictus, okay, which is the Greek word, it means fish, but also the I, I don't know Greek, what is it, iota, chi, uh, what is that, theta, lambda, sigma, I guess. So, in Greek, those, uh, those first letters stands for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So, this is an acrostic. You remember the word ictus, if you're Greek-speaking, and each of those five letters in ichthus is the first letter in Jesus and then Christ, God's Son, Savior. Okay? So it was an easy way for early believers to remember the heart of the faith and who Jesus is. And of course, the fish became a symbol, uh, and we see it today on cars, decals, and so on, okay? a symbol of Christian faith. If that's what an acrostic is, and what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be spending some time here with some acrostics as learning tools. If you find acrostics helpful, great. Okay, I hope you'll find these useful. If you don't find them helpful, remember the, the ideas behind them then. You don't have to remember the acrostic as much as you do the words that they represent. And so these are the acrostics that we're going to be working through. The first is S-O-G, and I'll be getting into each of these or we spell SOG, and we thought that was a little bit easier to remember than, say, GSO, which I'm not sure how you would pronounce, or OSG, which I'm not sure how you would pronounce. So that's the first acrostic. Second acrostic we're going to work through is GPS, and everybody's familiar with this global positioning system. We're going to use it in a slightly different way when we talk about God. And so this is an acrostic to help remember what it means to be God-engaged and God-aware. Okay, then we're going to talk about read, R-E-A-D, read yourself, read your own emotions. And each of those words, the R and the E and the A and the D, stands for a specific skill, a discipline that we can incorporate that will help us be more self-aware and more self-engaging. And finally, serve, S-E-R-V-E. So we have five elements under the serve acrostic as we talk about how to engage and be aware uh, of other people four elements under the God, uh, under the self-acrostic, and three under God. And that's it. Okay? That is the relational wisdom, discipline of mind, discipline of habits. Let me take you through these. First of all, any, does that make sense? Am I explaining that okay? You see where we're going with these acrostics? Okay. So the first of these is SOG. You can, <laughs> you can see this little girl, um, pure emotion, right, at this point not an awful lot of interest in hearing some kind of rational 
rational argument. Actually, the, this whole concept of relational wisdom grew out of uh, Ken Sandy, who's the founder, uh, and his difficulties with his daughter, who growing up as she reached her teen years was hugely emotional and making a lot of very bad emotionally driven decisions. And so he wanted to try to figure out how can I help her think more clearly about herself and others and God, and that's really what the SOG plan is all about. That's how this all began. Ken came up with this. So the S is just simply self-aware. Okay? And the O is other-aware, and the G is God-aware. And so we can be at a very meta-level, high level, if we're following a SOG plan, we're simply always asking, where am I, self, where are the other people, and where is God? And it doesn't have to be in that order. It's only in this order because that's a little bit easier word to pronounce. Okay? But as we said last night, or as I said last night, we discussed, you can start anywhere on that circle. Wherever you are most intimately and intentionally engaged, whether it's focused on the other person, okay, that's where you can start. But we don't stay there. If I'm looking at everything that that person is doing critically, okay, and not giving them a whole lot of benefit of the doubt. That says something about me, and that ought to drive me immediately to where am I in this, and how am I acting on that? And that ought to drive me to God, because the standard for how I want to relate to other people isn't something that I determine. Standards in Scripture. Okay, so I ought to be going back to God. So we start anywhere on the circle, but we don't stay there. So the SOG plan is simply that, being self-aware, other-aware, God-aware. It's an easy way to remember it. For me, this is the most useful acrostic because it immediately gets me into realizing that I'm focused on the other person and, you know, making all kinds of crummy assumptions about who they are and what they're doing and why they're doing it to me, uh, which says an awful lot I found out about where I am. And so it immediately drives me to think about what's going on in my life and drives me towards self-awareness. I want to show us a little video here, which will uh, give us a chance to discuss this and, and see this. We're try Jonathan needs more um, exercise, so we have him taking the long walk up here to turn off the lights. Let me set, let me set up the video for us. This is going back again to a movie we watched last night, uh, Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. He plays the role of Chris Gardner. And what we see happening here is um, at this point in Chris's life, a lot of things are going bad. He's really having some difficulties. He and his son are up on top of a parking garage roof, I think it is, or a building roof, and they're shooting basketball hoops together. Okay? So it's a little moment, a little slice of their life. The first words that you'll hear out of the little boy's mouth, they're hard to pick up, are, I'm going pro. I'm going pro. Okay? And that's where we're going to pick up on this. Yeah, values aware um, if you're not oriented toward God. <laughs> I'm going pro! Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know, you know, uh, you'll probably be about as good as I was. That's kind of the way it works, you know, and I, I, I was below average. You know, so, whoa. So you'll probably ultimately rank somewhere around there, you know, so I really, uh, you'll excel at a lot of things, just not this. I don't want you out here shooting this ball around all day and night, all right? Okay. All right, go ahead. let somebody tell you you can't do something not even me all right all right you got a dream you got to protect it people can't do something themselves they want to tell you you can't do it you want something go get it Period.
Okay. Going to put you guys to work at your tables. As we've started to talk about this stuff, I think you'll find it helpful if you actually begin to think and process in these terms. So here are four discussion points. We're only going to spend five to seven minutes on these, but I'd like you to try to answer them at your tables. And again, I'm not looking for right answers. I just want to know what you think. First of all, what emotions did you observe in both Chris and his son? Second, how did he reveal other awareness and self-awareness? This is the father, Chris Gardner. What did he implicitly confess and what values seemed to guide him? Now, we don't have any Christian content in this, yet there are some values that are very present in this little clip. So those are the four questions. See how far you can get, starting with the emotions you observed and what did you see that told you that that emotion was present, okay? And then go on to the other three questions and I'll stop us at about 25 before the hour. Okay, any questions on the assignment? So let's just, let's just open this up a little bit to, uh, to our entire group. What emotions did you observe and what was it that you saw that gave you a clue that that emotion must be present? Okay, how were they manifested? Okay, some anger, raised voice toward his son, so that told you that there was, yeah, something on the anger side of things there that might be, might be behind that. What else? Rejection of? Okay, feeling rejected, that his, his dream had been kind of squashed at that point. He went from elation he went from elation to total defeat in about that much time. Yeah, he really did. Boy, his emotions just really kicked in. You could see it, couldn't you, in the way that he's, his whole countenance changed, as well as, uh, as well as what he did with the basketball. Great. What else? We have emotions. Yeah. Um, but having the dad noticed um, frustration, overwhelmed, <clears throat> he um, said something he didn't mean to say to his son. And I think we're all guilty of that. He realized that other aware when he saw how his son ran to it. Yeah, so he really picked up on what was going on with his son. So, and the awareness didn't stop there. There was actually an engagement then. He followed up on what it was he was seeing, recognized the impact of what, he, of what he'd said, and he did something to try to correct that. Great. Anything else on emotions? transposing his emotions onto his son. Yeah, you know, you think he might, he might have had at one time dreams about being a professional athlete, maybe certainly dreams about something that he hasn't, hasn't achieved. How did he reveal other awareness and self-awareness? We've touched a little bit on that. Anything you want to add how Chris, the dad, showed that he was aware of his son and his son's state? Yeah. Yeah, and there are actually two points of self-awareness then, aren't there? That first self-awareness where the son says, I'm going pro. I'm sorry, other awareness where the son says, I'm going pro. And he said, whoa, wait a second, you know, the chances of that are... Okay. And then seeing how his son responded to what he said also. So a lot of other awareness going on and other engagement as a result of that. Great, what else? Yes. Yeah, yeah, dad was feeling fearful for the path that his son might go on. What did he say? I don't want you out here shooting hoops at all hours of the day and night because a lot of kids get caught up in athletics, not just basketball, right? And when it doesn't work out, there isn't a whole lot left because that's where their focus has been. So fearful and also protecting, wanting to keep his son from going down that path. Great, what else? Anything else on other awareness? 
Self-awareness. How about that? How did the dad show self-awareness? Do you remember what he said about you know, people who can't do something? What do they do? They tell other people that they can't do it either. Do you think he's talking in general there? Yeah. He's lived that, hasn't he? And that, that becomes true in, in that little phrase there, that sense of self-awareness. You know, don't let people do that to you. And I think the implication we see from the movie is that's what he's been through. Okay? All of his life, people have been telling him you can't do that. Okay? And he finally makes up his mind to do something about it. Good. Okay, how about what did he implicitly confess? There's not an explicit confession there or apology, but there's an implicit confession. What did you see? I, yeah, I was wrong. What I said in the way I said it to you was wrong. Was his concern a valid concern? Absolutely. Okay, valid concern, but not well expressed. You remember last night, we went through a slide real briefly where we talked about how idols take control of our hearts and we go from a good desire to a demand for that desire and then judging people and then punishing people when they fail to meet our demand. That's oftentimes how it sneaks in. We have a good desire and he clearly had a good desire, right? He loves his son. He wants what's best for his son. But essentially, when he said what he said, you know, I don't want you spending time doing this, he essentially began to demand in his life. And the, the result was the kid felt a little judged, okay, and maybe even punished by what his dad had said. It's really insidious because if we want a good thing, naturally we tend to think we ought to be able to have that good thing. It's really important that we go about trying to have that good thing happen in a, an appropriate godly way. And we can see what he wanted was a good thing for his son, but he went about it in a way that put his son, put him down, put his dreams down, rather than, as he did later, trying to find a way to lift him up. What values seem to guide Chris Gardner in this? What are the values that are driving the way that he engages his son? He has a high view of fathering. High view of fathering, and what is it, is there anything in particular that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. High view of fatherhood. Boy, does that fit with our faith. It's not explicit here, but the whole idea of God, our Father, and the way that we parent our children, okay, very much a part of what it means to live as a Christian. Anything else in terms of values? Okay, so this gives us a sense of, of self, other God. That's what this is all about. And we can watch a clip like that, we'll experience in real life. And if you're starting to ask yourselves the questions, what's going on with me? What's going on with that other person, that awareness factor? And boy, we really have to use all of our senses to be fully aware. It's not just what people say, is it? Okay, the, the kid didn't say much of anything, right? But you knew, you knew, you could tell from the way he responded, the throwing the basketball down, the way that he began to slump, the look on his face, that he'd been crushed. Okay, we have to pick up on all of those things, use everything that we have in the way of sensory perception to figure out what's going on with folks and respond to that in a godly way. So that's SOG. The next, oops, helps if I turn this on. Follow a trustworthy GPS. We all know global positioning system, great tools, uh, help people like me keep from getting directionally challenged, uh, keep from getting quite as lost as they used to get lost. I still have to type the right addresses into the thing. Um, first of all, the sense of a values-oriented GP, GPS system, because 
we do, as, as I mentioned last night, we are driven by values. And the question is whose values and which values? Okay? Are there values that we're finding out there in the culture? Are there values that have been communicated to us by our family? Are they values that uh, are inherent in our faith and that we, are, we find reinforced through fellowship and through participating in a Christian community? So a values-oriented GPS, if you have friends who aren't Christian, Nonetheless, this can be a really useful way to help them start to think about what's going on in their lives. So the G would be get the best. Whatever values you're going to choose, get the best values, the one that express for you the highest good that you can imagine in life. Pursue wisdom, and you can do this if you look at other people who are living out those values. That will give you an idea of what this actually looks like. You can read books, uh, you can go to training programs, whatever it might be, and serve others. There's always that serving component as a way of living out life. So for non-Christians, for unbelievers, this can be a way to help them begin to think more relationally and bring this whole idea of, of wisdom content into their lives. But for those of us who are Christian, who know the Lord, this is going to look a little bit different. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, we want to glorify God. So the G is for glorify God. And that means that we trust him and we follow him. Okay? And it sounds good until we're in a tough relationship. And we find ourselves having to respond to someone in a way that scripture says rather than the way that our emotions might tell us to do. You know, we all have favorite verses. Uh, one of my favorites is Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's useful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, you hear that? Let no unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. Okay, there's number one. Except what's useful for building others up. Where's my focus? Is it on me and what I feel? No, it's what's useful for building others up according to their needs. What does that mean? I've got to be really aware of what's going on in that person's life if I'm going to speak needs to them in order that it benefits who? It benefits those who listen. So even a one little verse like that is packed with tremendous content for what it can mean for me to glorify God in the way that I engage others. Sammy Stoner is a blind runner. And she runs races flat out. And can you imagine blind and running flat out? She depends totally on Chloe, her guide dog, to make sure that she steps in the right place. But even with a guide dog as skilled as Chloe, I would be terrified to go running flat out on some course where I couldn't see where I was going. And yet she runs and she runs very well. Okay? And this is a metaphor for what it means to follow God. She trusts Chloe to show her the way. And she, regardless of what she feels at a particular point, she's learned to trust that dog. And in the same way, we need to be trusting the Lord, okay? even if it doesn't feel right to us, because our feelings will change, won't they? And they're not necessarily a good indicator of what's right and what's godly in that moment. So we want to be like Sammy and the trust that she has in Chloe. So we're to pursue God, I means study, meditate, pray, worship, glorify God, pursue God in everything we do. Understand, spend time in his word. There's a relational issue that you're concerned about. Probably there's a lot in scripture about how we should begin to work that through. So spending time understanding what God has already told us and then serving God. And that means that we are doing what his word tells us to do. And boy, this is hard. Uh, this is so hard to do in circumstances where things have gotten a little bit tight, a little bit tough, and everything in me says, no, you know, I want to speak harshly to that person. I want to speak in a way that judges that person. Okay? That's not a reflection of what God is doing in my life. It is a reflection, though, of my sinfulness and how I'm condemning and, and trying to come down on other people. So serving God first and then using that as a springboard to connect well with other people. And that doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth, right? Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the truth, but what? In love, okay? In a way that brings out the best in them, and that's where that 4.29 passage comes in with words that focus on them and what they, what they need.
we're going to do a little, what I call a neighbor nudge here. And you're just going to talk to the person next to you. We're going to spend a little bit less time on this. So just one or two people, uh, talk, not one person talking together, talk to one or two other people. I'm not going to engage the whole table on this next exercise. I want to try to put a God component into this clip that we saw. So imagine you were the parent, mom or dad. How would you help your son at this point become God-aware, to follow a really trustworthy, the only trustworthy GPS. Specifically, as he dreams about the future with you, are there ways, are there things that you would advise your son or daughter in terms of what it means to glorify God and pursue God and to serve God? Okay, as he or she is talking about, here's what I want to do in the future. You know, all of that's great. It's wonderful stuff. And it will go even better if you have this in mind that your first guide point on the compass is making sure that God is engaged in this. So just spend a couple of minutes, just talk to your neighbor about this. What specifically could you say, uh, especially after a little conversation like this, like we just saw between uh, Chris Gardner and his son, that would help the son focus on God and learning to bring him glory and pursuing God okay, and serving him. Okay, we'll just take a couple minutes. Okay, so how would you engage your child? Child's dreaming about the future, a lot of ideas, a lot of plans, maybe a tremendous amount of talent in a particular area, okay? and yet you know you want to make sure that there's a God-centeredness, a God-focus in all of that. What are some things that you could say that would help your child develop this great GPS so that it's always pointing toward true north? toward where God resides. I'm not looking for right answers, remember. Okay, we're all, we're all friends here. We're all brothers and sisters. We all struggle with this stuff. I certainly struggle. Okay. 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 Okay, the story is uh, there was an example of a woman who had a Bible and put it under her car seat and only took it out on Sundays. Okay, only took it on, on, on Sundays rather than have, so this is not what not to do. In other words, don't hide the Bible under a car seat, but thought more in, in, in larger terms, don't make God a stranger. Okay, something that just happens on Sunday morning, but it needs to be part of everyday life. And actions really speak very, very loudly to everyone, but especially to our kids who may hear us say one thing, but if they see us do something else, boy, they're probably going to think they may say that, but that's not true because that's not how they live. Great. What else? Yeah. Yeah, boy, understanding who God is and his sovereignty gives a whole different reflection on what it means to succeed and what it means to fail, okay? Because God, we fail all the time, but God uses that to shape our character and to build us and to take us onto the next place if we follow him. So uh, having a biblical perspective on failure would be a really, really helpful thing. And so many kids take their clues to their value by whether or not they succeed in the eyes of their peers, don't they? We all do that. So helping them to have a, a much more, a much broader godly look at what it means to succeed in failure can be a huge conversation piece. Great. What else? Yeah. I know um, a lot of people are driven by success by what the world says. Mm-hmm. Mm. What can I do for him? 
what skills is God giving me? Because she, she focuses a lot on what I can't do. Okay. I tell her, focus on what you can do. Yeah. Okay, so broadening a person's way of thinking. Most of us and most kids, most young people, focus on themselves, okay? And they don't think in terms of how we can serve others. And what I hear you saying, Rudy, you're trying to do is, is you're seeing gifts in your daughter of service and compassion and help her begin to see those so that that begins to shape what she thinks about her future who God created her to be, the way that he wired her to have those gifts and how that can be used you know, in ways that might not have occurred to her at all. So having that kind of conversation, honestly helping our sons and daughters assess where their strengths, where their weaknesses are, and helping them to point in ways that glorify God by really building on those strengths, but not necessarily accepting the weaknesses either, finding ways maybe that those can be worked on. Okay, one more. Thank you. Thank you. Good comment. God's in the business of transformation. And I want to show a clip. And then we're going to take just a couple minute break so you can stand up and stretch and get some coffee. But the clip, let me set it up for you. It comes from a movie called To End All Wars. Um, it's about allied prisoners of war who are in a Japanese prison camp in Burma. And uh, it's based on a book written by a man named Ernest Gordon, who actually lived through this. Ernest Gordon uh, came into the war an, an agnostic, not a believer, nearly died from his wounds, but in camp after he was captured, uh, two guys nursed him back to health, and those two guys were Christian. And it changed his outlook entirely based because of how they had served him, how they'd taken care of him when they didn't have to. They could have just simply let him die. And so the clip we're going to watch is later in the film. At this point, uh, the Japanese are having some difficult times. What pulls in, a, a, a truck pulls into the prison camp with wounded Japanese in it. Okay? And the Japanese code at that point basically said, look, if someone's dying, don't spend any time on them. They're a lost cause. Okay? And the prisoners of war, the allied uh, group, is out there watching this. And Ernest Gordon is the character that you'll see who steps forward. Okay? God's in the transformation business. Here's an example of what that can look like. An enemy location was also hit nearby. The wounded had abandoned their posts looking for help. Their arrival at our camp would compel us to make the most important decision of our lives. A decision that would defy the Bushido code of honor and shame. Gordon, I forbid you to give comfort and aid to the enemy. Major, those 
are wounded, dying human beings. They're no harm to us. Help me get back to your own men. Someone please get me some water. Could someone please get me some water? story. Uh, Ernest Gordon uh, went on, went back, came uh, back, went to seminary, and for the last 25 years of his life, he was the dean of the chapel at Princeton University here in the States, left Scotland and came to live here. 